Hi everyone, and welcome back to The Blast Podcast, a show where we believe movies can be more than just movies. I'm your host, Steve Watts, joined by a very special guest and friend of the pod, Jake Culp. Today we're bringing you an episode that I've been itching to record since the creation of this podcast. A deep dive into one of my favorite films of all time, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Before we dig into the details, let's hear a word from our sponsor. As always, The Blast Podcast is presented by The Blast app, which is going to be available sooner than you may realize. Make sure you're following our Instagram page at Blast underscore movies underscore, our TikTok at Blast.movies, and our YouTube channel at Blast.movies to stay up to date on all of our latest content. There you'll find podcast clips, movie ticket reviews from Ty and myself, and up-to-date news on the progress of the app. Lastly, please make sure to check out our app's landing page at Blastmovies.net, where you can learn more about what Blast is going to be. Alright, Jake, I'm not sure we were doing this the last time that you appeared on the on the pod, but um, every week Ty and I talk through uh, what we've watched leading up to, to our weekly shoot. So, did you get to see anything this week? Yeah, so uh, I will say my watching definitely was down this week. I, I, as you know, got the Xboxes last week, so I've been trying to get back into uh, 2020 Madden form, which if anyone knows was pretty good. <laughs> I'm not that anymore. Um, but yeah, so I've watched a couple things. Uh, I, of course, watched Invincible Season 2 Episode 4 with Katrina. Uh, was fantastic. I know. I don't know if you have started that yet or not. I know you're planning on kind of watching in bunches, but yeah. it's it's awesome. And I'm really pissed that there's now a month break. But you know, <laughs> we just hold it down for a month. Um, and then of course the only other movie I actually watched this week was The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Just uh, you know, just trying to make sure that I had all of that. But those those are the main two for this week. Fair enough. And um, with Invincible, do you know when the like second half of the season comes out or not? So not officially, but I am a bit of an invincible fiend. So I, I do have some of the in, more inside sources. And I guess somebody, if you like jailbreak your Amazon Prime, it'll show you like the release dates for the other four. And it, it, the, that jailbreak shows that it's supposed to come back right after New Year's. So I can live with that. Okay. I can live with a month getting through and then just peak in January. Yeah, that's fair. If it was like March, then I think there'd be some problems. We'd, we'd um, have issues for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> if Ty and I decide to shoot a Invincible Season 2 like recap episode, uh, we're going to have to have you on because, I mean, you are you introduced Ty to that show and then Ty introduced it to me. So um, very special Jake wreck. Yeah, if, if, if you're ever looking for a TV show, I have a, like several bangers lined up and it was all completely incidental. It wasn't me seeking them out. I just happened to like find the best uh, TV shows to watch. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, I kicked off this week with a party watch with uh, our good friend AJ. Um, we watched Violent Night, the David Arbor Santa Claus killer movie, which did you see this one last year? Yes. And I got a lot of backlash because I put it... I. I didn't hate it. I strongly disliked it though. And in and, wow. and, and retrospect, I was definitely a little too harsh on it, but I know my blast grade for it. Uh, we were still using the demo back then and it was, it was a little bit harsh, um, but I, it's grown on me over time, but I'm still definitely more of the uh, critical side of that movie. I remember, I think opening up that blast beta and seeing like Jake rated Violent Night. Was it like a C minus or a C plus or something? <laughs> I, think, I think it was something in that range. And the only reason it wasn't worse is because Katrina had the, like the presence of mind to be like, all right, let's let's put some perspective on what this movie is. But yeah. Interesting. Um, I'm a big fan, but I also am a sucker for any movie involving Vikings. So, you know, biased. <laughs> Um, and then yesterday I had a great day. Uh, I decided to take one day off of test prep. I've got my actuarial exam coming up on Thursday and I watched four movies and an episode of TV. Um, so I started off with aliens, which I haven't seen probably in five years. I wasn't a huge fan of the alien franchise the first time I saw alien and aliens, but this time around, uh, was a lot better. Um, then followed that up with a Vietnam classic Rambo First Blood Part 2, um, which is very, very fun. Um, have you seen any of the Rambo movies? 
Yeah, so I've probably seen two of them, but when I saw them, I was probably no older than 10 or 11, which is probably not the best time to be watching a Rambo movie, but I do remember those on Spike TV or whatever they'd show them on back in the day. (laughs) It's interesting because the first one feels like a very well thought out like commentary on how we treat our veterans, and then the second one is like, let's make it even worse. (laughs) (laughs) Um... (laughs) But the setting is cool. Uh, being back in Vietnam for Rambo is an interesting um, like way to to get into this movie. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Followed that one up with No Roy the Curse, which is a found footage Japanese film from 2005 about this like paranormal investigator who um, kind of like does like is setting out to find a psychic child who's gone missing um fairly interesting but not really for me the way it's edited i think was my biggest problem with it there are a lot of like 10 minute long tangents that it goes on and two hours for a found footage film is just a little too long for me um rounded out the, the movies of the day with a film that is or was banned um, after coming out. And this is Silent Night, Deadly Night. And Jake, I don't know if we talk about horror that much, but I am a fiend for 80s slashers. And this was like a dream come true. Um, <laughs> this is just all subtlety thrown out the window. It's Friday the 13th if Jason was Santa Claus. Um, and I fucking love it. Uh, I'm definitely going to watch part two, uh, over the next week or so, but this was just a really good time. And finally rounding out the day around 3am, I watched Invincible season two, episode one. I don't know if you want to get too into it, obviously, since you and Ty are planning on having a pod, but is there, do you have any initial thoughts you want to give on that? Really? Okay, I, I, I loved the opening, um, but I was disappointed with where it went from there. And I don't know if I really buy into the villain. Um, uh, maybe he gets better, but right now I, I feel like the, the motives are off and I, I don't know if I like his origin story, really. It is a little random, but also I the I agree like the middle of it almost felt a little clunky of that first episode, just kind of like getting through the end. Like you said, it relates to his motives and things of that sort. But I thought those last like 15 minutes were just like, that's what I missed. Right. You know, two and a half years without it. And then like seeing kind of just like the craziness that they throw into like when you're kind of like yeah. you let your guard down is just that's what got me. But I, I definitely see where you're coming from with those points. Yeah, um, and the last thing I want to touch on before we move into the movie is I don't know. I I think that it might be a little too overcrowded. That's also what I was getting from this first episode. We have plot lines going with Adam Eve, with the robot guy, um, the Mahler twins, the new villain, Invincible. I feel like there might be a little too much going on for, for my liking. Sure. No, that makes sense. Um. Okay. The Last Black Man in San Francisco, directed by Joe Talbot. Um, Jake, is this a blast movie for you? Absolutely, without a doubt. Um, and you know what's funny is a lot of like my blast movies end up being like very, and, and most, pretty much all of my like blast ratings from the beta and what I plan on doing once the full app is out is is oftentimes kind of just random movies that I watch with Katrina and we're like, oh. You know, this is uh, every once in a while we just get in a mood where we're just like, man, we really want to watch something good. And this just happened to be on Netflix that night. We threw it on and it was it was one of those. And we'll talk about more about the actual movie later. But it's one of those where it's just whether you go in expecting it to be great or not. I think it, it supersedes your expectations. It's like, man, that that was just something that will change your night when maybe you're not necessarily expecting it. So for me, that oftentimes constitutes a, a great blast movie. I love that. Um, <laughs> I have recommended this movie to a lot of people who have not been able to really get into it. Uh, they told me that it's boring and all this stuff, but I really think that the character work here is pretty much unmatched. Um, I think it has a lot to say. Uh, and this is a blast movie for me as well. If you can't tell, this is in my top 10 of all time. Um, I have loved this movie since the day I saw it. 
and it taught me something. I, th- I think that for me, it's a blast movie because it taught me something and changed my perspective. Um, we talk about high school a lot, um, but in AP Human Geography, I remember them introducing the the like concept of gentrification to us and just saying. So gentrification is this really cool thing where bad areas become better. (laughs) And that was it. And so watching this movie kind of opened my eyes as to what else like comes with that change um, from that incredibly oversimplified definition. So I kind of wanted to start this off with a brief history of the gentrification in San Francisco, which I did some research on yesterday. This is all just sourced through Wikipedia. Um, But essentially, in the 1990s, gentrification was greatly increased when an influx of tech workers uh, coming to work in Silicon Valley and and for local San Francisco startups uh, started immigrating in. Um, Tech companies also started to charter buses for workers to easily commute from their homes uh, in San Francisco to work in the Valley. Then that led to the Google bus protests, I believe is what they were called. Um, basically rent control laws ended up, uh, were, were put in place in hopes of kind of allowing some people to stay, but ended up decreasing citywide rental units by 15% and increasing rental costs by 7%. So kind of backfired. Um, since 2009, the number of evictions in the city has risen every year, which is astonishing. And, in since the 90s um around 18,000 African American individuals have left the city of San Francisco where a combined 47,000 white Asian and Hispanic individuals came in um so a lot of demographic change um basically low income immigrant neighborhoods were overtaken by higher income individuals as San Francisco became the incredibly expensive city to live in that we know now and I, I don't know. It's it's an interesting history to me. I, I was reading about this. I didn't really know much about San Francisco, even though my sister lived there for um, a few months. Yeah. And, and I'm glad that you kind of gave that context to it, because obviously that's what this movie is about. It's the context of the black community in San Francisco. And and, it, and obviously it can be translated to really anywhere, but especially in San Francisco, uh, I did a little research myself uh, going into the second viewing because I was like, you know, I'm really fascinated on like the actual like the scale of it, you know, kind of taking a step up and seeing where this is affecting overall. And you did a great job of breaking down a lot of what the issues are and why we face what what we're facing in areas like San Francisco right now. Um, another interesting thing is the and we'll they'll talk more about this in the movie, too. But the Harlem of the West or the Fillmore District was something that mm-hmm. when I read more about it was really, really interesting because it actually became kind of a hub for uh, African-American culture, things like jazz and and kind of uh, establishing that in San Francisco uh, between the 40s and 70s, approximately, they even got their population up to 13% of the population of San Francisco at one point was African-American after the Great Migration out there uh, from World War II on through the 70s. And just seeing how quickly that kind of got taken away from them and, and kind of the idea of ownership uh, of where you are in your community it was really really interesting and the way the movie did it and how it is in real life and um for context the the united states is about seven percent uh african-american correct you know i believe it's like 12 or 13 african-american okay okay um i thought it was lower but regardless that that percentage of african-american residents in san francisco has drastically dropped and there's been an ensuing culture shift in in san francisco um I also wanted to start this off with a brief background of Jimmy Fails, who is the main character of this movie. He plays himself. He's credited for the story. And um, he and director Joe Talbot have been best friends since adolescence. So this is kind of a, a best friend telling another best friend story. Yeah. And that was incredible to me too. I didn't know that going into the first watch at all. And and I didn't even know that at the end of the movie, I saw Jimmy Falls being credited in there and I was like, Oh, he must've been some side character. And then I looked up the the actor, you know, obviously one of the first three actors that comes up is him. And it was just so incredible. I was like, Oh my gosh, this is, 
like actually his life. And I think that just adds another like level of profound sincerity and emotion to the storytelling. I think it adds a lot of authenticity. Um, yeah. I, one of my favorite movies of all time is Cretia, which is directed by Trey Edward Schultz, the maker of waves. And he shot that movie in nine days at his family beach house with a cast of his family. So it, it kind of reminds me of that in the way that it's, it's somebody telling their own story and it adds so much emotion to it. Um, one thing I did want to address, one of my favorite podcasts, uh, Black Men Can't Jump in Hollywood, I highly recommend everybody goes and listens to them for a more cultural context on films that come out. Um, they kind of trashed this movie when I listened to their pod. I was fairly upset um, when they came out with their episode. And one of the main reasons they they disliked it was that it was a white man telling a black man's story. Um, and Jimmy Fails uh, came out and said quotes a lot of people have a misconception of joe trying to tell a black story but that's not what it is he's telling his friend's story and i just happen to be black i thought it was interesting that fails defended that um so early on with with the film coming out at festivals and stuff um but i i don't know i i, I just thought it was interesting that these two were able to team up in general and and make this movie two kids from from san francisco yeah, and and I think that's a really important point to talk about when discussing films that handle a certain culture, especially the African-American story in the United States. There's legitimate criticism that can go towards um, the direction and things of that sort with it not coming from a perspective of somebody who knows, um, right. mainly because of, but I don't think it was intentionally done or in a way that they were trying to rewrite any sort of history or tell it from um, a perspective of someone who doesn't know. Like you said, it's Jimmy fails story. And, and what is so interlinked with his story is the history of African-Americans in San Francisco of, of, of black people and their culture in that community and in the United States as a whole. So the criticisms are extremely valid, but as you say, and as, as you noted, the Jimmy file fail said, you know, kind of after the release of the movie, it wasn't really the intention of a white director making this movie. It was him telling a story that you can't ignore the important, um, implications of his race and ethnicity in right and i think that fails from what i've read it seems and all of this background on jimmy fails does come from articles written by vanity fair and rolling stone i highly uh, recommend you check those out as well they've got some beautiful interviews um but i think jimmy uh contributed to the story quite a bit it seems like and he was really involved with the writing of it um but he just isn't a classically trained screenwriter um by the way though his acting i thought was top notch i thought it was great i can't believe we haven't seen him in like a ton more movies after this release and that was one of the other things that i found really surprising when i looked up the movie and i see jimmy fails as one of the main actors and he's playing himself um, and then I look at his like Wikipedia, there's not even a picture of him. No, obviously you can find pictures of him on Google and things of that sort, but there's no picture of him. And I'm like looking for his IMDb and like what his next releases were. I think he's made one other or he's been in one other project since I believe he might mm -hmm. have something else coming up. But yeah, I totally agree. He was incredible in this story, especially in a role that requires so much carrying of the story. He was fantastic. And maybe he was aided by the fact that it's, you know, a percentage autobiographical, obviously, but um, I, I thought, I agree. He was fantastic in this film. Right. And speaking of being um, a percentage autobiographical, he said in a quote that it is more than 20% autobiographical. So he kind of elaborated that there are some scenes and some characters that feel very real and that um, he would shoot some scenes and have to relive the moments that, that it took the, him back to and he would just cry. And it's I, I think that also adds to the performance. I would say uh, that he goes toe to toe with Jonathan Majors in this, who controversy aside um, and lawsuits aside is, I think, one of a the the best acting talents in Hollywood right now. Yeah. So I don't know as much about earlier Jonathan Majors, of course. Um, I mm -hmm. wasn't in on all of his earliest projects, but I know this has got to be one of his 
early ones, you know, stepping onto the kind of the big scene of of movies in the industry. And he was incredible in this film as well. And again, I'm sure we'll talk more about that into it. But I totally agree. I thought both as much as as different as him and and uh, Jimmy Fails were and like their characters were, they were both like every time that they had a moment where it was really centric on them, which was, I'd say, 98% of the film probably, um, it was beautiful and it, you could really connect to it in both of their cases. Absolutely. And in real life, um, we, we keep on talking about authenticity. In real life, Jimmy Fails and his father did lose their home uh, in the 1990s due to rising costs. And they lived in shelters, projects, group homes, and their car for for a while. So the, the brief plot overview of this movie is that Jimmy Fails lives with his friend Mont, played by Jonathan Majors, while caring for the house that he grew up in. Um, that his father and him lost in the 90s when the people living at that house currently lose it as well jimmy moves in as a squatter and hopes to regain some of his identity and identity is very centric to this movie um i i want to talk about what makes this so special and i think that starts with the characters uh so jimmy is somebody who is struggling to figure out who he is in the San Francisco that he sees right now, changing, losing all of the people that he, he once knew lived there moving away. Um, he is really the only person we see in this movie who does love San Francisco. Yeah. And I think, and, and I don't know, we don't want to give away spoilers right now, but loving San Francisco and, and kind of being connected with it is such a huge part of this movie that there's there's literally a scene near the end of it where it's like he emphasizes like kind of how you how connected you have to be to the city and and the audience can feel it too to love it um and and his identity both within the house and within the city is uh something that is is palpable almost within this film and and he does a really good job of of just almost like living within it and embracing it and making it part of him and part of his personality and his whole, the whole city of, of San Francisco and his identity. And obviously that's kind of the topic of the movie, but it, it really is such a stronghold, especially for a majority of it, his connection to this house and to the city. Right. And uh, you said we, we don't want to get into spoilers here, but um, this is going to be a deep dive pod. So I think it's fair game. This movie did come out five years ago. And I want to talk about the house because Jimmy claims for almost the entire movie that his grandpa built this house. And that's why he is so connected to it. Um, but we find out late in the movie that it wasn't built by his grandpa and he actually knew, um, but chose, chose to kind of believe that, that it was for some semblance of reason. I, I want to hear what you think. Like, why, why do you think that he believes or he chose to believe that the house was his? Well, and, and one of the things I want to say about the house is it's its character in its own in the movie. Obviously, like like Jimmy in the house's relationship is, I think, just as much of a like uh, character relationship uh, in the film as is with him and Mont or Mont and Kofi. Like like mm -hmm. these relationships like you can feel it. The house is alive and you the second you get in the house, like they actually go inside. So the movie starts and uh, that beautiful scene where him and Mont are, are uh, skateboarding through down through San Francisco. Um, mm -hmm. And it is gorgeous. And you get to the house and you only see him, you know, painting the outside and taking care of the, of the bushes and stuff. And you get the scene where the, the person who is currently living in it, the residence, the, the wife is like throwing lettuce at him because he's like painting her <laughs> house, which, which to be fair, when she's like, what are you doing here? He's like, I'm almost done. Don't worry about it. So it's like, it's, it's almost understandable, but um, the house is so beautiful. The second they get in it, you see like all of these things he talks about. And there's that beautiful scene with him and Mon are running around and he like trips on the stairs and then he has to go, he goes outside to that little like tour group 
that comes by and the guy's talking about the house and he corrects him, which we later find out the tour guide who is absolutely a villain, by the way, when we present him and still is, was actually right. And we're sitting there like, yeah, you get him, Jimmy. And he was technically telling the truth. He was talking about the origin of the house from the 1850s, which it was. But as far as we know, at that point in the film, it's Jimmy's grandfather who built it. And Jimmy goes in this nice, beautiful monologue about all these different details of the house and how he built it by hand. And he, you know, he purchased the land and this big wall to keep all of you out. He made that himself. And I just think that it is such a powerful being in the house. And once they get all the furniture in and you just feel it come to life, um, it is so awesome. And it's understandable why Jimmy has such a connection. If you think about the rest of his story, you know, based on the movie and in real life, you know, after they get kicked out of the house, he's living, as you note, in group homes. He's living in a car with his dad. Um, one of the early parts of the movie, they run into the guy who stole the car that him and his dad were living in. Um, for a long period of time and he gets in and he's like oh you haven't changed it or anything and and you could feel like jimmy has some level of connection to this as well because it's a home but it, it's almost that his identity with with the actual home that he he is so connected to in fillmore in the fillmore district is it almost blocks uh everything else that he's had to go through and he gets to just focus on this one thing without confronting kind of the rest of of his life and his upbringing, you know, which is obviously such a horrible and difficult one that he's had to endure. Right. And I want to go back to the scene that you mentioned where Jimmy and Mont get inside the house for the first time in the movie. And it is, I think the best scene in the movie by far. Uh, uh, Maybe the play could be, could be there too. Um, But we don't see Jimmy and Mont running through the house at all. We see still shots and we hear them screaming and laughing. Uh, occasionally we see their shadows run across the screen while they are celebrating, just getting inside. And I, I think it's so beautiful and interesting how the house feels so alive once they come inside, even though we're looking at just completely empty rooms. Yeah, no, they, this is completely, there's no furniture in this place. There's nothing. And you walk in and it's just, there's so much life in this house, like on the walls, in the design of it, in the architecture, that it makes sense that Jimmy has such a connection to it because you, you, you're there and you feel it and, and you can just feel the semblance and the origin of this house again, especially, you know, we're under the presumption for, uh, you know, 80, 85% of the film that his grandfather did build this house. So you, this is such a, you know, impactful connection. Um, and I, and I love like kind of like the jarring scene at the end of him and Mont running around the house where he trips on the top of the stairs, bangs his head. And he's got like blood all over his mouth and is not, not worried about it at all. Just walks right outside. And again, this is the part where the tour group comes up cause he hears them and he's explaining it with like blood all over his lip and stuff. It's like it's mm-hmm. not even there. It just it breathes this sort of life and and happiness into him that you don't see in any part of any other part of the film, especially up to that point. Exactly, and this makes me want to talk about Mont too, because Jimmy's two two companions really are the house and Mont. This is one of the most interesting characters I feel like I've ever seen. Um, I never truly get a sense of like completely who he is but i also feel like i understand all of his motivations and this is he's just the most eccentric artist you'll you'll ever see maybe a better playwright than shakespeare i don't want (laughs) to i don't want to say too much Um, but one of the one of the beautiful things about mont is that he sees a deeper level in everybody that he connects with and he's able to find beauty in everything and there's a scene where this group of there's a group of like four or five people that kind of just sit at Mont's curb and just like throw throw jabs at uh, him and Jimmy every time they leave and call them names and all this stuff and at some point in the movie he says am I not allowed to appreciate them um, just because like they're mean to me and I thought that was really beautiful yeah and 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 he uh, adding to kind of how he sees the world he sees it as a play i I remember when i first saw this 
I miss, and this was more of a misconception on, from me on the first viewing. I sent you and Ty a text and was like, do you guys consider this a musical? I would go back and say no. However, I would, and as you mentioned already, he's a playwright and there is a play at the end of this movie that is just gorgeous, by the way. Um, and it is, he sees the world as a bun- as actors and, and playwrights and, and things that can be fulfilled and there's arcs and there is, um, you know, content, cont- continuity and change and all of these different things. And I love the scenes where he's down by the water side and there's, there's little moments where he's practicing essentially for his play. He's pre- he's playing out um, kind of the way different people speak and is trying to mimic them. And there's, there's a couple very funny moments um, because the, the way that Montgomery is as a character is very different than I think a lot of the people around him and, and him trying to mimic their um, kind of their tone and their cadence and, you know, kind of the lines they use is it's definitely very humorous because it's like, this is, he's, it's very out of place, but mm-hmm. he sees all of these different things, like you said, kind of above what you might see, just like you might think just walking down the street, as you say, that, that, that kind of group of five guys that's always outside of their house on, on the corner, um, they're always shit talking. I mean, that's like part of what they are. And it's almost like a, I feel is in going back to the play point, it's almost like a, a signifier that we're on to the next scene. We get something from them or we get it from the uh, pastor like, character in the beginning of the film that has his long monologue about what they're doing to the the underrepresented people of the city um Mm -hmm. and when all of these things are happening you're not just seeing it kind of like how maybe you would see it walking down the street you are seeing these people as like characters and actors and you're seeing the emotion you're getting these like close-ups and these very like slow down maybe uh slow motion you're not hearing the words but you're seeing Kofi's reaction when she's one of the characters in that kind of like that group of five um, and, and just being able to experience them in a different way that we absolutely would not have as, as an, from any perspective of a, you know, quote unquote normal character in this movie. I, I think it was really invaluable and it was, it was awesome to kind of just get that perspective on everything. And the, the member of that group of five that gets, kind of dove into the most is Kofi and I want to ask you what you thought of Kofi's character I also think he is very very complex tragic uh I don't know about I would say tragic hero like honestly and then that was and again we're going to continue to kind of go back and touch this point that this movie is a play and it sets up for a play which is the last black man in san francisco like it, it really is a play inside of a play and i think kind of the direction of what everything that's happening outside of montgomery making this play is also its own play it, it's it's i have a whole perspective on it that probably isn't very clear but it it it's interesting because Kofi is very, without a doubt, the first half of the movie, the tragic hero. He's not a main character, but for Montgomery, he is the main character. He's the guy, you know, he draws pictures of him. There's a moment where, and it was it was going back to the point where you mentioned that uh, when Montgomery tells Jimmy, like, I can't love these people. I can't, you know, enjoy their experience because they're mean. It, he says some really, really bad things to Jimmy. I mean, horrible things mm-hmm. after 10 minutes earlier in the movie, they have this scene where Kofi comes over because Mott invites him over to the house and they have this kind of bonding evening and they, they're, they're very, um, they're very open with each other. They're very vulnerable and it's a really sweet and touching moment. And he comes back and he basically betrays Jimmy's trust. And yet Ma is still seeing him as this tragic, as this hero in the story. And he ends up being that tragic hero. Cause even in these moments where maybe he is his weakness by his actions, you can tell they, they make an emphasis on his facial expressions and kind of like his, his vibe and his energy. And it's always very much he's half in. And that is the context of a lot of his character story. And, and it builds, it builds and actually helps build Jimmy's character throughout the story too. Yeah. And I think uh, in, in uh, Mont's play, I think he says it best when he just says the world put Kofi in a box, but he had dimensions. Um, there is, a a lot of peer pressure on Kofi to be a certain person. And um, when he strays from that, he seems happier uh, when, when he's in the house with Jimmy and he, we see him 
like laugh and and have a good time for the first time and then the next day he's he's back out there yelling at yelling at mont and jimmy telling them that the house sucked and that they were doing all types of weird stuff in there and it it makes it it brings about a lot of uh, vulnerability i think and seeing that just because people act a certain way towards you doesn't mean that you need to judge them on that. And that there's, there's reasons that people act the way they do. Um, Kofi's death in the film eventually brings about a two, two really great scenes, I think um, with two of the other members of those, of, of that group of five. And one of them comes up to Jimmy and Jimmy starts yelling at him and saying, he was my friend too. It's your fault. And you, you're expecting the guy to either start fighting him or, or yell at him or something. And he just starts crying. He breaks down and hugs him. Yeah. Um, the, you can go. Sorry. Sorry. No, I, no, I, I, I think that was a beautiful scene as well. And, and, and I think another really big topic that this movie covers and it, it, it kind of almost does it as a side, because of course the growth of the movie is learning about Jimmy as a character and as a, as a person and that he also is more than just one thing. Right. Um, but a big thing that is highlighted in this movie is toxic masculinity and the mm-hmm. idea that you can't be vulnerable with one another. Um, and, and this isn't really, you know, necessarily something that I, I can, you know, provide a full perspective of because this is it, it does have a lot of central focuses within the African American community and how that's handled as well, which I think are all very valid points. But again, that's not a perspective that I have, so I don't. I'm not going to comment more on that because that's not something I can bring to the table first person. However, I think in, from a perspective of general, you know, masculinity and in the perspective of how you should be as a man and the relationship that that Mont provides Jimmy. Um, and, and kind of gives a mirror or a reflection of how Kofi could have been because there's another mm-hmm. line right around that discussion that we keep coming back to where Mont and Jimmy are discussing why you still, why Mont still cares about these guys that hang on the corner that are without a doubt, extremely mean to them up before Kofi's death. Like they are not right. nice, you know, they're, 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 they're holding their image and they're not, and they make fun of these guys and basically call them, you know, gay, homosexual, fruity, et cetera, et cetera for mm-hmm. being so close together and vulnerable. And, and Jimmy's like, mom, why do you care about them? You really don't care about what they're saying. And Mont's like, you also talked crap to me. He says a different word, but it, you talked crap to me mm-hmm. when, when we first met too. And that was kind of that signifier of like, man, Kofi, which another uh, context for the movie, Kofi and Jimmy we're in group homes together. So they are coming from um, extremely similar origins and extremely similar starts. And you kind of see that the opportunity to embrace multitudes, to embrace the the dimensions that you have as a person completely change the outlook and, and the way your life can continue. Um, and Mont is fortunately able to unlock that for Jimmy, but he doesn't get to, fully do that to Kofi essentially in time to prevent his death, which is another thing that is unfortunately foreshadowed in this movie. Yeah. And Jimmy even says, uh, at one point, I feel like that could have been me. Um, and I, it does, does he say, if not for, if not for you, but yeah, it's, if not, then it's implied, um, that, that Mont kind of saved Jimmy from going down that path and being the one who, who would have, been killed um he mont is able to unlock a a deeper side of of jimmy that's that's really powerful do you have anything else you want to say about the characters real quick um danny glover as the grandfather of monty uh montgomery uh was fantastic um, an mm-hmm. incredible character, very fun, very loving, very much uh most of the film there is a part where like uh jimmy uh, comes back and him and Mont are kind of like scrambling through their stuff. And, and you could tell it's concerning for the grandpa who is so close with Montgomery um, with mm-hmm. his grandson. And he's like, where are you guys doing? What's going on? Like, I don't care what's going on. Just, you know, tell me how's your play going. And, and Mont's kind of dismissive for, for, from what we know, probably the first time ever based on like kind of the character perspective and the relationship we get out of them. Um, 
and he makes this mention that like, oh, well, you know, he could pay a little bit more if he wants. You know, he's not family. Yeah. And, and Mont's like, mm, he pays half, Grandpa. Um, <laughs> but uh, outside of that, I think he is awesome. I think he's a treat. I think, um, oh, goodness, I have it. Uh, Tashina Arnold, as well as the aunt in this movie, she oh, yeah. is she's normally i believe she's in oh gosh is she she's not from everybody hates chris i don't even remember where where she acts in otherwise but she is absolutely like fantastic she normally i think is in more like very comedic roles but she's still very funny her especially her relationship with her husband i presume in the movie is awesome it's very cute and they even like kind of highlight like this is super cute um Mm -hmm. but she is an awesome like without a ton of dialogue without a ton of like super hard-hitting lines is really a powerful force in in uh, almost a beacon of of positivity for jimmy in this movie so i just wanted to shout those two out because i thought they were great minor characters in this movie i completely agree um and even the mom even jimmy's mom i think is is really good in this movie she only shows up once for about uh like maybe a minute in total maybe and the way they shoot it is also very beautiful they have like this angelic light surrounding her like she is physically glowing around the the outline of the body and jimmy hasn't seen her in however many years um it's it's not even really stated but it's this instant connection and you can tell how hurt jimmy is when when she's there i think she gives an incredible performance this is also jimmy's real life mom in the role yeah and she in that that scene really dug in for me because it's just the casualness of of his mom like in the moment it's like yeah. oh it's my son how and it's like it's almost like you're seeing like a friend that maybe you talk to like three times a year or something like that like just to check in and maybe you get together once every other year or something it's like a casual like oh hey how are you give a little hug on the bus and then get off and it is just so heart-wrenching and you can see kind of from montgomery's perspective he's like oh my god this is like how how is this working for jimmy how is he not breaking down right now and and yeah, it is, it's that scene, that scene really cut deep for me. Cause that's just, I just can't imagine like what has to go on for Jimmy and just for anybody, if they were in that situation with a mom, which by the way, is not really trying to be involved in Jimmy's life. She, she says, Oh, I'm going to come see the house tomorrow. And of course in the movie, like the next day they get all their stuff thrown out of the house. So it's almost better that she doesn't go, but it, but mm-hmm. it, she never shows up. She's like, Oh yeah, I'll show up and never, never shows up. And it, it's, it's so difficult, but she is awesome. And the one minute she's there, Rob Morgan, who is Jimmy's dad in the movie. Also amazing. Got to make sure I shout him out too. He is, he's, I don't know, not an antagonist necessarily, but he, he is, he's definitely he pushes like, pushes Jimmy. He puts in Jimmy into that the box. He puts Jimmy yeah. in that box, in my opinion. And, and he's I, really good at it. <laughs> he is yeah um one of the one of the best shots of the movie and i want to move into talking about how beautiful the cinematography is is jimmy walks up to a homeless man puts his board down and gives him a dollar and he's like hey can you watch this for me and we get a slow zoom rather than following jimmy walking into his dad's apartment we get a slow zoom up to like the the 14th floor or, or like it's it's pretty high up and it goes all the way from the street into the window and you see Jimmy's dad looking down. And the first thing Jimmy's dad asks him is, do you still skate? And Jimmy says, no. And <laughs> like you immediately get this, this tension added um, from, from knowing that Jimmy's dad saw him give away a skateboard. It's the, the entire movie is, is very, very beautifully shot. Um, the, the slow motion is that's used throughout kind of captures all these moments in time. Um, when Jimmy and Mont skate through the city, especially do you get all these slow motion shots where it's just slowly panning of, um, white people watching, (laughs) watching Jimmy and Mont skate and looking like shocked, mad sometimes, like just upset. It's, interesting and the way it lingers makes you it it gives you time to process i wonder what's going on in this person's head 
Yeah, and like you said, they're not quick shots. It's not like you just get a little like flashes of these random white people or something. Like you're like on their face and they have a like very disgusted or like almost maybe annoyed look on their face every time it it cuts to to them in those slow motion scenes. There's another one I think about and it's the party bus. Um mm. where so and and it's doesn't zoom in on the party bus. You you get this because the party bus isn't meant to represent like a single character, right? It's meant to represent like the general community or, or the population, mm-hmm. the demographics right now of San Francisco and kind of these tech bros who maybe are out of touch with the rest of the world, the rest of the city. And they go by and there's, and, and next to Jimmy for context, there's this, I believe homeless <laughs> man. I don't know what is, I don't know what his context is, but it's this poor guy in just underwear and a hat and he's he's minding his own business you know he's just doing it and so is jimmy you know they're just both kind of waiting for the bus and this party bus comes by and these guys you know one of those like drinking peddlers or whatever and all these guys are one of these guys are like this guy fucks and from there he starts this whole chant embarrassing this this individual who is out there naked but was not bothering anybody um And you get to see you, you again, this, I love how the scene doesn't zoom in on any faces on the bus. It's almost this like, um, just general, like, like, yeah, it's like an entity. Exactly. It's something that it's like the characters are not important. This is meant to be the represent the population, the demographic of San Francisco, maybe, maybe not the enemy, but kind of what's turning, um, San Francisco into an uninhabitable place for our demographic, you know, in this case, uh, the African-American community and other communities that are underrepresented. And it, it focuses on the uncomfortability of of the, the naked guy who's just like, man, why are these people bothering me, essentially? Like, he doesn't say anything, but you can tell he is really hurt. And then the body bus leaves and he just leans over to Jimmy. He's like, this city and jimmy's like i already know man like and, and you, you're like heck yeah that is that's the point where but if this happens with outside the context of this movie it does not i don't think it resonates necessarily with as much of the audience as it does in this film because he gives a perspective that i think a lot of people don't understand and a lot of people including me by the way like something that i could not understand that i don't have you know necessarily in touch perspective with and is like yeah, all these like fun party bus things you know, and and kind of like this this um, dehumanization of people that are underrepresented and, and are struggling in your communities, that is horrible. It doesn't matter if this person's walking around naked. The fact that you can make that like your laughing stock, your joke of the day, that scene really hit for me. And I loved the way they they portrayed the, and I love the cinematography um, in, entailed with it, but also just the, the storytelling, how they presented it. And there are a lot of static shots that don't move or zoom at all um, that, that do that, that portray kind of groups of people as one like entire demographic in San Francisco. Um, one of the other things that I think is, is powerful is when we get those slow zoom ins and those, those moments in time with the slow-mos, I think that it emphasizes how, Jimmy's story is just one of a million. Um, like we get glimpses into all these people's lives that that aren't really explored any further than like like the homeless man. Um, but we don't we, like we end up asking, I wonder what is behind behind this guy's story. Like why is this guy just naked with a fedora on sitting at the bus stop, and what what led him to this point? I think that that's really powerfully done throughout this film. Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree. The last scene I really want to talk about how it's shot is the play. And we've we've talked about the play quite a bit. To give some context, once Kofi dies, uh, Mont just like has an epiphany and writes a play in a, a matter of days. And it's a one-man play. He's half half his body is like costumed as one man, half is is the other. And the way it's shot slowly you go from watching Mont flip back and forth and seeing the imperfections of his costume and everything. And 
it, it transitions into we're cutting back and forth and it feels like he's two characters now the costumes look a little bit better it it feels like a real production and even though it's just put on in the attic of this house by by mods and for like three seconds jimmy <laughs> yeah yeah um <laughs> sorry do you have anything else you want to continue about it and i can jump in i don't think so i i just okay I, that that play is is really powerful to me and and it yeah and again and this allows me to continue to circle back to this point that I've been making a lot and that this movie is a play inside of a play and and, and okay the is gonna again this is gonna try to, I'm gonna try to like connect this like the where this is working in my brain so this movie is about a play which is the last black man in San Francisco now the movie's name is also the last black man in San Francisco which is also a play in my mm-hmm. opinion, where you kind of, you, I feel like between scenes, you get very much like onto act two, scene three vibes very much, you know, whether it's music, whether it's um, a monologue, whether it's like you said, a, a, a zoom shot or a slow motion shot. Um, and I love what you say about how it changes the cuts as um the argument is escalating between Jonathan Major's character Mont- Montgomery and himself, but he's he's playing Kofi and um, one of the other characters close to Kofi. That was that was one of his like five friends of guys that were always talking crap, right? Um, and as it slowly changes and you, you the production raises and you don't see the flipping and it goes to cutting and the argument raises and and the mood and the energy raises, you kind of get sucked into this play it's in it's like being inside of a box inside of a box inside of a box which is funny Mm -hmm. because we talk about not being boxed in but in the context of like we go from watching a movie to i feel like watching kind of being immersed into a play about making a play which is the movie and then we're in a play watching somebody else perform a play and by the time we get to the end of Montgomery's monologue, we are in that play. I feel like we are we are characters or the audience oh, yeah. is a character in that play, experiencing this play inside of a play, which is actually a movie. Um, and again, that probably doesn't make a lot of sense. It makes more sense in my head, but I, I think it is an incredible scene. And, and, and as you mentioned, he then changes, he shifts into the monologue that starts the movie. He doesn't, he doesn't um, do the same monologue, but he's dressed as the character who delivers mm-hmm. this really, really beautiful ode to San Francisco, by the way. It's, it's, of course, a he begins this, the movie, talking about how they're trying to essentially kill off and eliminate uh, the black community in San Francisco. Um, but Jimmy's focus as this character is like, who knows who knew Kofi, what is the impact in his life? But his overall message is the same, same one that, that this character in this, in this big suit and this orange tie is delivering at the beginning of the movie, which is society is making it so that this community, so this person, the, all these people in this community have to be boxed into these expectations. And that's not the way it has to be. And that's, you kind of build this story along with other stories that are kind of like, seeping in to create this one beautiful like huge ending this huge climax to jimmy's character and story by using kofi's story by using montgomery's perspective by using the context of of all the of the african-american community and and where they are in the setting of this movie san francisco which um as you mentioned is next to this toxic lake where in the movie and i couldn't find anything about this but maybe it's true but they're like oh yeah they built the nuclear bomb right there like they built bombs right there in the lake that's why it's poisonous like there's they're not trying to hide it um and i just think it works uh, works wonderfully the portrayal of san francisco as a whole is incredible in this movie there are those toxic waters that you talk about there's a point where jonathan majors is rowing through uh through the like lake or ocean no that would be an ocean um in a rowboat and like this fish hops in and it's got like too many eyes and it looks horrible and jonathan majors is also selling the fish as his job which is really funny to me uh-huh. um but in that opening 
monologue that you just recently mentioned uh, with him talking about how the, the black people are kind of being eliminated from this, from this community. You see these, all, all these white people in hazmat suits walking around, like trying to clean up and the, the black people in the area are just sitting there breathing in all the, all the toxins, all the, all the horrible things that are there. And the preacher points that out. I think it's awesome. And it, it, San Francisco itself just seems like a mess in a lot of ways in this movie, but it's very dreamlike. Um, buses are always running late and all, all of these problems are happening. Like how many times do we see Jimmy and Mont just sitting at a bus stop saying like, I think we're going to be late. And that transitions into the juxtaposition of them skating through San Francisco and seeing how beautiful the city is at its heart as well. And even though they get bad looks from the white people while they're skating, it feels very peaceful and, and beautiful and just taking in the moment. Um, rowing in those in those waters with the toxic deformed fish, there's also scenes where they row in the waters and it seems beautiful. It's really interesting to me. It is. And um, I have a couple of thoughts about especially that juxtaposition of the scene. Um, to start, going once again into that monologue by the preacher-like character, um, he he talks about, like, why do they have the hazmat suits? Like, they're too weak to breathe this. Like, we've been born. Like, we we do this. We can handle this adversity because we've been forced to, which is, of course, a, you know, and a, and a uh, basically a commentary on the African-American community in a lot of cities, not just San Francisco, but especially San Francisco as well, kind of overcoming adversity provided, uh, brought down on them by greedy capitalists, white people, you know, patriarchy, Mm -hmm. although all these different things, right. That are all extremely exactly, you know, valid and exactly why we're going through these issues. Um, it, it, he segues, you know, he has this beautiful monologue talking about the, the, how they're trying to kill the black community. And then Jimmy like cuts it and he's uh, like, he cuts, and he's like, man, it's crazy with jail do guy. And then Jimmy's like, which was, which was kind of a funny part. Cause it's like, by the way, this guy's pointing out something. You mentioned this like dreamlike, like this is very yeah. like hit you on the face, like two eyed fish, uh, Jimmy saw a seagull with a human penis. Um, we don't get to see that, unfortunately, <laughs> but he did say that. Um, this is a plot point early in the movie. And um, it transitions, though. I mean, Jimmy's like, let's let's ride, let's, let's skateboard. And it yeah. does this beautiful cut to a beautiful background, slow motion. They get the zoom out shot where they're going through San Francisco, everything we've already talked about, right? And as the background, as, as kind of the um, music, not necessarily the music, but the score of it is... It might be the same actor that is starting the monologue, but it's he he goes from this very specific in this dreamlike world or or kind of very kitschy on the nose world of I'm fo- focusing on this issue. It's almost like he's like, okay, step back from this movie. By the way, while you watch them go through San Francisco, this is what's really happening. And he talks about how pretty on the nose. I don't think he ever says it directly, but it's essentially talks about the African-American community being forced out of San Francisco, but he's like, we built these walls. We built this community. We built this. Our soul is in this. So you can kick us out. You can knock us down, but you can't eliminate what we did here. And we're going to always, you know, fight through adversity. Um, And it is really a beautiful tone setter for what this movie is going to be about. Um, And I think that was probably my favorite part, both the cinematography of the scene and the score, or I don't even know what you would call that kind of the, the overlay of, of the monologue being presented during it. Yeah. um, One of the, I wrote down one of his quotes from it while they're skating and he says, we are these homes, their eyes, their pointed brims. We move if they move. And um, even later in the movie, uh, I think it's Jimmy says there's no place like home and somebody calls him like a wizard of Oz. <laughs> uh, I don't know, but the identity of all these people is tied so closely to San Francisco. It's, it's really beautiful. Um, 
uh, going back to the Black Men Can't Jump in Hollywood podcast, they said that the message that they, they got from this movie was just that shit happens, so move on. And that's another thing I kind of took issue with. I thought that the, I, I couldn't really disagree more. I think that the message comes from Mont's quote from the play, which is so beautiful and I'd love to have tattooed on me one day. Let us give each other the courage to see beyond the stories we are born into. Um, Jimmy, when he finally leaves San Francisco at the very end of the movie, is really bittersweet. Um, he's He is defeated. Uh, it sucks because he has no control. One of the most heartbreaking scenes of the movie is when his house gets put on the market. He says, he, he goes to a bank and he's like, yeah, it's $4 million. You can fuck me with interest rates however you want i will i will never miss a payment this is all i want i just can't make the down payment and the guy's like no we can't we can't do it and he just has no control he he feels and and it feels as as a viewer like he did everything he possibly could have and he still can't win but he's finally moving on and seeing who he is beyond this house yeah, and 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 what leads him to make that leap of faith, I believe, is he has this after the play, which I think at this point of the movie, I think we could probably, or this point of the pod, we could probably make a reference to what happens in the play. So if you're okay with that, I'm going to kind of just spoil oh, yeah, yeah. how. So basically the play, uh, Montgomery does this play at the beginning about Kofi, and he's asking everybody, you know, what he means to you. And a lot of the people in the audience are very close to Kofi in some way or another. They interacted with him in their community. And he gets to uh, Jimmy, and Jimmy's like, look, last time Kofi talked to me, it was terrible said the worst things I've probably heard anybody ever say to me. And by the way, he's a guy who lived, who had uh, drug addict parents, who lived in group homes, who was homeless for a long time. He's like, he said some of the meanest things I've ever heard. So that really puts some things into perspective. And they were some horrible things that were being said. Um, mm -hmm. But he's like, but he's like, that wasn't, that's not how I remember him. I remember him as the guy who stood up and took a beating for me because he protected me in the group home. He's more, he is contains multitudes. And of course that leads Montgomery to push Jimmy and be like, look, look outside of this house. And Jimmy's like, no, I don't want to. This is all I want. But there's this beautiful scene afterwards when after we find out that Jimmy knew all along and he tells his dad and his dad's in denial. His dad's like, don't let him. And his dad's, by the way, you know, varies a lot in this movie. He starts, he's like, we don't talk about this house. And then he comes to the house and you can see the joy it brings him and the peace mm -hmm. and contentment. And then understandably so he's very upset 30 minutes later let's say in real time whatever um when essentially jimmy's like yeah this house that i've been hyping up for you you know that we we, we took so much pride in when we were younger um i know that this isn't ours and his dad obviously doesn't take that well he's like you're not gonna you know let somebody else tell you what's true um but his aunt then talks to him and she tells him i think you can make this place your home um, and I don't remember the exact line she follows it with, but she's, it's essentially something along the lines of, I think you can do something else somewhere else that you can make more yours though. Don't try yeah. to force yourself into this spot. Don't work your life to make this work. Follow what is right for you. Make your own wave is again, like you said, is, is the point of the play and the point of the story work in your own life, no matter what you were born into or your perspectives. You know, look for what makes you happy. And of course, that leads to him leaving in what is, of course, a bittersweet moment. I felt so bad for Montgomery because um, yeah. it follows that scene and him just very sadly going through his daily routine without his best friend. Um, but it really is just a beautiful story of opening. And I agree with you. I think this story is not about just like taking things for how it is. It's 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 the opposite of that, of anything. It is stepping outside of what you would normally be conventionally expected to do in any situation. It's not just moving on. It's taking the lessons you've built with and the adversity you've fought through and becoming somebody that you love and can be happy with and, and can enjoy life because they all deserve to. And I think it really right. is just a beautiful story arc. And where you grow up is, it is a large part of, of forming your personality, but it, 
it's also saying that everyone is more than just where they come from. Um, because if, if history is all we are, then what's the point of the present? Right. And so Jimmy moving on, I think is a really, I, 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 I was proud of him for finally seeing himself beyond just a house. Um, I, I thought it was truly beautiful. Um, the, one of the new segments of this pod that we've done is is comps for for each movie and a lot of the ones we've done recently are a little more funny um but since this movie has a very serious tone i I wanted to ask for for what this movie is like uh for for your from your perspective yeah and that's really tough because this movie is not like I don't think you walk into this movie. You're like, yeah, this is something that I like, especially from my mm-hmm. perspective in my biases and, and my uh, um, background and how I was, you know, where I, how I grew up is not a lot that I can like personally, you know, one for one empathize with. I don't have those experiences. Of course I can sympathize, but that's, it's different. Right. Right. Um, but I think in terms of the tone of the movie and like the feel, I put a couple notes. I put one was like a cool breeze, which is it's just weird, but it's like it feels just like smoothing and and very yeah. very soothing, very like embracing as you're watching this film and you're kind of becoming part of San Francisco or this world, San Francisco, right? And and getting into the culture. Um, another example, I would say. And this is more of my perspective because I'm I'm a big fan of just going to cities. So like I, I went to school in Ann Arbor, loved it. I love Chicago, and I love I work where I work in Chicago right now is uh, way south side, like Oaklandish area. But it's it's mm-hmm. part of you know neighborhoods of Chicago, right? And it's really really cool um, experiencing places that maybe don't get talked about a lot in especially in big cities, you know, smaller neighborhoods and things of that sort, and just seeing how much community is in there, how much like personality you can feel um, in the areas and in the design of the buildings in the people in, in just everything. And and that would be what I compare it to is, is almost uncovering a hidden gem in a city. You know what I mean? Something that you can really connect to and feel palpably. Absolutely. Um, My comps were kind of similar. I, I said, watching this movie is like waking up and standing in the rain while you just like admire the beauty of the world um i i also felt like this is this is just like catching up with your best friend after a few weeks of, of not talking to each other um and then the last one i had is just it it feels like truly and unashamedly caring about something and and really anything um this movie is just so ripe with beauty and passion and love between friends it's it's so awesome um and i think this is a great place to close it out so jake i want to thank you once again for for coming on on such short notice um ty couldn't make it this week for listeners who haven't realized that and (laughs) (laughs) waiting for a cameo um, in the last second post credit scene (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ty and Dallas is just, oh. Um, <laughs> but thank you all for listening to this episode of The Blast Podcast. Be sure to check out our website at blastmovies.net. Stay up to date on all our latest content and news, as well as our Instagram at blast underscore movies underscore, and our TikTok at blast.movies, where we're posting podcast clips now. This has been a wonderful pod, and we'll catch you all next week with a Christmas draft. Thank you.